0: 12, maybe 15 years old ish, somewhere like that. And as you know, the computers especially start to kind of go off a little bit and at the point where we can't even update things because it's just the system is so old. And so, one of the things I wanted to mention to you, the church, is that we're uh, looking if you'd like to donate toward that. It's going to cost us about $1,900 to replace that computer. Uh, if you'd like to give a little bit toward that, you just write computer on, on the offering envelope or on the check or whatever, but we're looking to see if you would uh, if you would help us out. Now this is something that you really need to replace uh, probably sooner than later. And uh, anything that you give is going to be matched you know, said that were going to match So please uh, give for that We want to of our to replace that computer soon before it breaks completely and we can anything on it. So uh, if you'd like to give that that would be great. You can give either box in the back. You can also go online to hcc and you can give online as well. And the reason I mentioned that is because last week I had someone who's fairly new to the church that said Pastor John, I don't have cash and I don't have checks. How do I give? Do you, do you have an online portal? Or like, of course you have an online portal to give. I do point to do that. So maybe you should remind people of that every so often. So there you go. Now you've been reminded that that is an option as well. Uh, it's kind of a, I guess overwhelmed last night, Sarah and I went to uh, Worcester and our, our kids. Uh, Worcester was the church that we, that I first pastored, that was my first church. I was there for 12 years, and they celebrated 100 years as being a church there in Worcester. So it started in 1922 as a Swedish mission, and uh, there was a bunch of Swedish people there in the Worcester area at that time. And it's continued to grow and things since then. And, uh, so it was great to be able to celebrate with them last night. So we saw a lot of familiar faces. Uh, my wife, Sarah, grew up in that church from the time she was a baby. to so the baby left in Arizona. And uh, they had schools; school, so she went to school there, K-12. Spent a, a big chunk of her life there in that building. So it was great to, uh, to be able to celebrate with so many people. And you know, I think one of the biggest blessings for us of the biggest rewards for us is to see the number of students that went through our student ministry that are now pastors on staff leading that church, leading worship, and doing all kinds of things there. And uh, so that's just a, a blessing and a reward for me to see that uh, students that we poured our lives into and disciple to see them continue to serve the Lord even today despite all the statistics that say that young adults walk away from the church. Uh, many of them are still there at that same church serving the Lord. So... Uh, Yeah, so a hundred years. It's pretty pretty crazy to think about that. This morning, we've been talking about the Life's Biggest Questions. And so here, this is week two, talking about this. Uh, Two weeks ago, we came together and we started this new series called Life's Biggest Questions. And what we're doing is we're going through the Psalms to learn about how the Psalms, written almost 3,000 years ago, still speak to us here today, and can even speak to life's biggest questions that we have today. The first question from Psalm 1 that we talked about a few weeks ago is, why am I not happy? And maybe a few related questions. Can I really be happy, and if so, how? How can I be happy? Now, if you missed two weeks ago, I want to encourage you to go on our YouTube channel, on our website, or our Facebook page to watch it. I want to encourage you to kind of get caught up. And again, I'll say that again, hcc.getcud.com. We don't have any numbers. A little commercial, I guess. I read something once by a psychologist who said that in order to be happy, we have to feel a sense of freedom. We have to feel like we're valuable, that we don't have to walk around feeling ashamed or condemned. But many people, the psychologist said, are overshadowed by our lurking sense of judgment, where you feel the sense of judgment around you wherever you go. And sometimes it's regret. Sometimes it's uh, over a specific action or something that you've done in your past. Sometimes you just can't quite put your finger on it. You can't quite figure it out why you feel the way that you do about yourself. It's just that feeling where you look at yourself and you say, I'm, I'm just not good enough. I'm not good at it. If people knew the real me, they would reject me. And I think every one of us has a voice inside of us that are telling us those kinds of lies consistently. We did a whole series on lies. We're not going to go through that all again. But there are these voices that speak to us that tell us consistently and constantly, you are not good enough. Everybody else is better than you. Everybody else has things going on. You don't. So, our question today is something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with me? Is that why I'm not happy? Is there something wrong with me? And if so, is that what keeps me from being happy? Psalm 32, going will be from the NIV version. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2, says, Blessed, and we, we talked about this last week, blessed also in uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, it's happy. Is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed or happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So here we have David in Psalm 32, saying, Happy is the person whose sins, whose transgressions, So the, the bad news today is that there is something wrong with you, but it's not what you think, and it's not what you tell yourself. It's not that you are bad, or that you're evil, or you're unlovable, or everybody else is better than you are. In this psalm, he is connecting happiness to forgiveness. Connecting happiness and forgiveness. He's going to say that there is, in fact, something wrong with you. That feeling of shame or uneasiness has a grain of truth in it even if it's distorted a little bit. And in order to be happy, you're going to have to deal with it. That's not the way that you typically do. Verses 32 through 3, verses 3 through 4 tells us a little bit about how we usually, typically handle sin. It says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away for my groaning all day long. When we keep silent. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Salah. Salah, scholars say that the word salah means to stop and think about that for a moment. See, the psalmist looks up and connects this feeling of unhappiness, this sense of condemnation, See, when Adam and Eve first sinned, what did they do? They felt shame in their nakedness. They felt shame immediately when they sinned. And it all goes back to our relationship with God. Not all shame is legitimate. Sometimes shame comes from suffering or abuse that has nothing to do with you. But we have a sense of judgment that comes from our separation with God. We just talked about the curtain this morning. We had a word about the curtain. That curtain represents a separation between Else I got. You see, not all guilt is bad because sometimes it's it's like pain. You may think of pain as bad, but pain can actually help us. You see, if I'm leaning my hand against a hot stove, I'm grateful for the pain that lets me know that I'm burning myself. Right? That's where pain is good. It's a warning signal. There's something going on that you need to do something about right now. And guilt can be God's messenger, showing you that something is not right. So, if you feel that sense of guilt, there might be there might be just a sense that God is trying to show you something is not right in my body, something is not right in what I'm doing, something is not right in what I'm thinking. And that's what we read here with the psalmist. This is what he's experiencing in his life. Something seems off. He says, "Maybe you are." No, sorry, not sorry. He says, "Maybe you are finally at a place." back and maybe we recognize the selfishness that we had. Maybe we can look back and we feel a little guilty. That's not necessarily a bad guilt because God's trying to do something. Maybe you've lived certain ways for years and only recently. thought about. It is grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace taught my heart to fear. And that same grace, my fears, So, does grace make us afraid? Are we living in fear? Is that what we think that grace is Maybe that kind of grace is more like you shine a light in complete darkness. And the light reveals what's wrong. The light reveals what's going on. See, grace, I think, shows us our fears. But grace doesn't just meet us in our fears. Grace, our fears will lead See, before you can clean up what is torn up, you have to come face to face with the to be Before you can The first sign that the light of God is beginning to enter your soul is the feeling that it says here in this passage: "Day and night your hand is heavy upon me; my strength is dried up." Psalm 32, 5 says, Then I acknowledged my sin. Then, with the heavy hand of God on me, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me of my sin. See, in this passage, he is telling us how to be happy. See, to find happiness, The first thing is you need to be honest about your sin. You need to be honest about where you are. It says, I did not cover up my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. And this is a clear reference. It takes us back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Because that's what they did. What did they do? They covered their sin. Right? They looked for something to cover up. And the first thing God did when he came to them was call them out from hiding. Because they were hiding from him in their sin.
1: They had to uncover themselves and
0: eat up with their sin. What they kill the lamb. You killed the lamb to make a covering to Give them a picture of how he will deal with sin in the future. See, in order for God to cover their sin, they first had to uncover it. Or you could say it like this Cover your sin, and God will expose it. Expose it. related to this, to find happiness you must own your own sin. Four times in verse five, he uses the word I. I acknowledge my sin. My transgressions. My iniquity. The first thing we typically do to our sin is exposed as we start justifying it. Human nature, right? See, when God called on Adam in the Garden of Eden and said, what have you done? What's the first thing Adam said? Well, it's the woman that you gave me. She made me need it. In one sentence, Adam blamed two people: the woman and God. It's your fault. And what does this say to us? Well, maybe you say, "Well, the reason I'm like this is because of the situation I'm in. I've been treated badly, and that justifies my bad actions." Or I haven't had all the other; I haven't had the privileges that everybody else. Or I've worked hard and I deserve more than what I've been given. Or what I'm doing is not that bad compared to everybody else. Maybe I've done just enough good to maybe make up for the bad stuff. See, Adam really should have said something like this it wasn't the woman that God gave me, it certainly wasn't the circumstances that he He wasn't just hanging around the wrong crowd. He was the wrong crowd. (laughs) Why he goes along with the wrong crowd? In the words of Bud Zeppelin, nobody's fault. Have somebody apologize to you by saying, and I don't know this might be a little touchy. You might need to you might need to screw over from your spouse just for a moment. I'm sorry that I did this, but you you know where that leads, don't you? Some of you know where that leads. If you don't know where that leads, I am not know what's <laughs> <laughs> You really know the Many times, many, times, many times, probably more times a week. See, God's forgiveness, then, er, er, God's forgiveness ends. God's forgiveness begins where blame shifting ends. God's forgiveness begins where blame shifting ends. Take off the clothes of height and self-justification and excuses, and acknowledge it. It's my sin. It's my sin. To find happiness, you must learn to hate your sin and not just. Confessing, to seeing things from the perspective of one that you've wronged. Not only are you admitting it, you're changing your perspective. In English, you confess something and you can confess something and not feel any differently about it. Classic expression of this is if I offended you, I'm sorry. Which means I'm not sorry for what I did, but I'm sorry that you got upset. Some of you are like, ooh, this message just got out of the spirit. Constantly. And behind me, I am it. Confess, this song, means now I see things God reversed. You've heard David say in other places, against him, against God, and him, have I sinned. What I've done is wrong. You are many people confess their sin and turn from it because they they got caught. They're embarrassed. It's painful. And the attitude towards sin itself hasn't changed. That's not one confession. See, God doesn't want people just to obey like we you know. You know, we just tell them you know where to go and leave it. He wants people to obey in their hearts. He's not just after obedience, he's after a whole new a whole kind of obedience, a whole new heart. A lot of people avoid sin because they're afraid of what others might. You don't really hate the sin. You just want to not be thought badly by others. So here's a question. This is, this is an interesting thing to think about. If I threatened to put out all your sin from the last month on video, here on the screen, for everybody to view, how mortified would you be? I would be. That would be a Sunday I think I might skip. I mean, there's a game or something going on somewhere, right? Probably stop saying sinning at least for that month. As best as you can. You might turn over a new beef, but you know what God you know what God knows and the idea is that more afraid of what people think than we are. So when your heart's attitude towards sin itself has changed, or has not changed, there has to be an attitude of difference in how you view that sin. To find happiness, you must actually change direction. Psalm 32, 10-11 says this, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds them
1: Rejoice
0: in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, sin, all of you who are upright in heart. And here we have the psalmist has changed. He's confessed. He's seen his sin from God's perspective, not just his perspective. And now in verse 10, what he talks about is his newfound trust trusted God. In verse 11, he talks about this new joy of God, this new surrender of God. And God surrounds him right there in that moment after he's confessed where there is no change. There has been no confession. So this is where we turn from sin. If you continue in sin, you come to the point where maybe you can start to hate Sundays. You hate the guilt and the shame that you feel. You just stop eating together with other people on Sundays. And, you know, There's parts of scripture where God says, I hate those kinds of Sundays too. I hate when people just honor me with their lips, they are not living it with their lives. Their hearts are far from me, but you're with me. You know the words to say. you know the words to speak. You know the language. You know the language. Even more than simply just showing up on Sundays, God wants your repentance. Wants us return from sin. Not to clarify, it's not to say that repentance and confession makes us perfect and. Which would be nice if that was the case, but we all know your that direction. You've shifted directions. You may fall often, but each time you get back up looking toward God. Maybe you fall, but you fall closer to him. Maybe you fall you closer to him. Next is to find happiness you must hide in God. Psalm 32, 6-7 says, Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Certainly the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Or other versions will say songs of victory. Songs of, you will surround me with songs of deliverance, songs of victory. And again, going back to the Garden of Eden, standing with this picture of the animal picture what Jesus did on Calvary, what we just celebrated here during our communion. See, God didn't just not just forget about our sin and just kind of brush it aside and pretend like it's not there or just cover it up so you don't see it. You know, like when you have a you know, guest or somebody coming over quickly and you start to throw stuff wherever you go just to get it clean somewhat. God doesn't cover our sin that way. And I love this imagery. You surround me with song. Other words, just say you surround me with shouts, shouts, and songs. You surround me with that, and it makes, makes me think of when Jesus died on the cross. Scripture said that He cried out in a loud voice, "It is finished." Say someone you love is really behind on their car and you have the finances, so you might, and you paid it off. found out later that someone from the bank was at their house trying to repossess the car that he already for. I think he would probably come with a very loud voice and say, you can't take that car. I've paid the debt. I've paid for that car. And God didn't just not just forget our sin and brush it in the side. He defeated it. He paid it in full. We may have voices inside or outside condemning us for our sin, but it has been marked, paid in full. It's already been paid for. And Jesus doesn't deny that what we're saying is true. Because there is some truth to the things that we've done in our past. But he just cries with a louder voice. I have paid their debt. I have paid your debt. I have paid John's debt and you have no more claim against it, Just like with the car. You have no more claim against the car. It has been paid off. paid in full. The way to get rid of those internal voices of guilt is not to ignore them or to argue with them, but to drown them out with the shouts of the gospel. To drown them out with the shouts of deliverance. To drown them out with shouts of victory. When the enemy comes to you and says, you're messed up, you're no good, there's no hope for you now, Jesus shouts, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the enemy says, you have no future, Jesus shouts, I know the plans that I have for you, to give you a future and a hope, to use you for good and not for evil. When the enemy says, you're a thief, you're a failure, you're a liar, you're untrustworthy, Jesus shouts, such were some of you, but now you are washed, now you are justified, now you are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. See, when the enemy comes against us, Jesus shouts back and says, pay We have no plan here. You might say, well, pastor, I know all that. say that or you're shouting at someone else's voice, your life is louder than God's voice. What other people think about you is shouting louder than what God is saying. See, God has, to be, has become so weak that his opinion. At you, not with shame and condemnation and disdain, but he looks at you and says, I am well pleased. And you, I am well pleased. And that's what we need to hear. Those shouts are huge. Those shouts have been painful. The things that we've done in our past, the things that are of our background. This psalm reminds us that he is our protector, he is our hiding place. Well, I'll close this morning. comes from verse 6. It says, Seek God while he may be found. Seek God while he may be found. What the psalmist here is telling us, seek God while you can because there's going to be a time where you can't. Seek God while he may be found. But there is coming a time where he will not be found. There's coming a time